Blog Talk Radio. training edition, the 74th edition, and, and we're very glad to be here with you tonight. And uh, without further ado, uh, let's first bring on the co-conspirators without, uh, before we bring on our featured guest uh, later this evening. And uh, we're going to start in Brooklyn, in Bensonhurst, uh, with Mike LeColon. What's going on, Mike? What's going on, Sam? Hello. Hello, everyone listening. Uh, let's go, Mets. Let's get this started. Let's get this started and uh, going up to Connecticut and uh, Rich Spirago uh, joining us. How are you doing, Rich? Hey, Sam. Uh, doing well. You know, any day that you're working from home, like I think most of us are these days, uh, and you're able to flip the game on, albeit soundlessly, but uh, have it as background, it's like, you know what? Life could be, life's better. Uh, automa- automatically better with just that, so I'm doing well. Automatically, and I I gotta tell you, just by the sound of the highlight, I wasn't able to watch the game, uh, in in you know the moment. But Pete Alonso finally put me back into this serious baseball mood. I hadn't felt like that in a while, hearing the crack of his bat. And um, we're going to be welcoming uh, Faith and Fear and Flushing's Greg Prince onto the podcast shortly. Uh, but but first, uh, just go to Rich. You. You know, that's one of the things about working from home now is that you can kind of have the game on while you get everything done. Uh, so what did you see? What did you hear? Well, you know, I I wasn't able to be totally dialed into it, of course, but what, here's what stood out to me. David Peterson did what David Peterson does. He looked good. He threw strikes. He, when the other team, you know, when uh, when Washington made contact, they hit the ball on the ground. And that's what you want. I mean, that's what you're looking for from David Peterson. When, when he pitches the contact, they hit it on the ground. They don't hit it hard. That's exactly what I saw. Um, you know, Pete Alonzo, the nice thing about that grand slam, other than the fact it was a grand slam, which I, in case you guys didn't see this, I think it's kind of been everywhere. Uh, today's his mother's birthday, so it's kind of a neat little thing. He was able to hit a grand slam on his mother's birthday. Um, but the nice thing about it was he hit it to right center field. And he hit it. It was a line drive. It wasn't like a high arcing drive. And what does that tell you? Well, that tells you that when Pete was really good in 2019, that's what he was doing a lot of. You know, he wasn't pull happy. He was hitting the ball out of the ballpark to all fields. And remember, I think he hit about 260 ish in um, in 2019, which is not bad for a power hitter. Not bad at all. Um, and and then last year at 231. So. And I think he just became, you know, he got jumpy and sophomore slump and all that. So those are my key takeaways. Also on the negative side of the equation, um, I think we all know Don DePantis, um, I hope he figures it out because he did not look good at all. Not just the fact that he gave up runs. You can give up runs in spring training and it's about getting work. That's not the issue. 
The issue is he looked like he didn't have anything. I mean, uh, they don't show pitch velocity, so you don't really know, but got, he wasn't missing bats with his fastball. His curveball was not sharp, and, and he just doesn't look good. You know, and um, last year you could say, okay, you know, he's coming off an injury. All right, you know, let's give him some time. But now, you know, he had that surgery coming up on two years ago. And uh, I'm a little concerned. Mike, you and I were discussing about Dylan Betances, and, and he's the biggest uh, negative takeaway here. Uh, what, what say you? What say you from this interesting uh, early March spring training game? Well, today was confirmation of what we feared leading up to spring training. He, we, we covered it. He lost four miles an hour on his fastball. You know, so the plan coming into spring training was for him to relearn himself and how to rely on breaking pitches. And Rich brought it up. You know, he's throwing rainbows up there. They're not sharp breaking pitches. You know, so today was a net result. One inning, four runs, a home run, two hits, two walks. That's not good. That's not good. Uh, and if you, the meat and potatoes of this bullpen is going to be potatoes for million Giselman, and if they keep performing the way they've been, we're going to be in trouble. We're going to be in trouble. Uh, it, it might be safe to say that the Mets didn't do enough to shore up this bullpen. Uh, and the candidates that we have, insofar as the minor leaguers, we said before the show, let's not forget that, you know, a lot of these minor leaguers did not have a 2020 season. There was no minor league season. So this is their first action since 2019. So big question mark. I'm not going to get crazy from training. This is just the start, you know, and, and Batantis needs to, uh, well, he, he has a lot of work ahead of him over the next month. But, you know, unfortunately, today sort of confirms what we've been fearing from him. That it certainly does. Uh, you know, he's got to tighten it up, that's for sure. And ironically, he gets the win. And uh, through the uh, the magic of modern technology, we bring to you Faith and Fear and Flushing's Greg Prince. Greg, we, I, I was saying earlier that the sound of Pete's bat put me back into the baseball mood. What say you after these first, uh, uh, I believe it's four spring training games, correct? Well, if you want a throwback, Sam, I got a busy signal when I tried to call in first. So uh, <laughs> perhaps that tells us uh, so, something is uh, in the air. But, uh, yeah, Pete Alonzo, 2019 Rookie of the Year, uh, looking as if 2020 never happened. His 16 home runs notwithstanding uh, last year was kind of a uh, – a tough go for him as it, as it was for basically everybody on this. Um, that was nice to see today. Uh, nice to see anything baseball related when, uh, you know, the temperature is dropping once again here in New York, but um, you know, it's, it's all beginning to stir uh, our doubts <laughs> as well as our excitement. So, uh, you know, good to be alive and uh, living in March and uh, not having uh, you know spring training uh, be curtailed as it was last year, Knockwood. 
Knock on wood, that is certainly the case. Um, so far, so good. And the numbers, you know, they were plateauing for a few days, but do seem to start skipping once more. Um, in, in terms of, like, baseball, you know, you know and, and the fact that I, I was also saying that this lives, Greg, within a, a three-inning game almost with when it comes to some of these, these uh, big players and – you know, you, you all of a sudden, I, I forget what uh, the other player that homered other than Brandon Nimmo, uh, but uh, uh, some name that I've never seen before. Um, what is it? Uh, Reed Foley, uh, you know, locked it down for the New York Mets. This is a, a pure, unadulterated early spring training game in March. That's okay. That's what uh, early March is for, uh, to see these guys. And, uh, you know, to obviously to listen to the announcers on the ESPN interview, people who are not playing in the game. Uh, apparently that's also <laughs> what these uh, games are for. But, uh, you know, th- this is a chance for uh, some of these guys like Sean Reed Foley to make a little bit of an impression uh, on us and on, you know, the coaches and the manager and the general manager and so forth. I mean, they have their own way of uh, seeing what these guys can do before there is a minor league season or whatever passes for a minor league season this year. But, uh, you know, the, these names stick in our minds. I think uh, Louis Guillaume was introduced to most of us because he uh, stuck his his hand up and, and caught a, a bat <laughs> a couple of years ago uh, during a spring training game that was otherwise flying toward the stands or into the dugout or something. So, uh, you know, the, these are little impressions that are made. And uh, they're important for our psyche. I don't know how important they are for, you know, progressing these guys' careers. But, uh, again, it's good to see. Rich, I don't want to say that Sean Reed Foley isn't going to have some sort of of say on the the 2021 New York Mets. Uh, I, I, you know, not realizing he has a 635 ERA and 28.1 innings pitched. You know, this is what spring training is made for. Yes, and I think, you know, pertinent to something we touched on earlier, um, you know, it, it, it's – I don't want to be the reactionary Mets fan or fan of anything, you know, for spring training games. But, but let's face it, you know, the bullpen looked pretty bad today. Our worst <laughs> fears mentioned earlier – of, you know, Familia and Batances, those, those things are kind of popping up a little bit, and it's early, you know, we all need to calm down. But um, but because of that, what it has at least me thinking is there might be some genuine tryouts here. These aren't just guys eating innings. You know, Reed Foley, I, somebody that uh, came from the Matt deal, um, he might be somebody who at some point gets pressed in the service this year. Who knows? You know, we didn't see Tommy Hunter today, but a guy like that, a depth pickup like that, Montgomery, like we talked about him in the last podcast. These guys, you know, the Mets, when the Mets were accumulating these bullpen arms, um, with what we've seen in, in the ripe old four-game exhibition season, um, the depth was good. You know, Greg, it sounds like you watched the game, and at one point I did have the volume on, and they talked to that guy from ESPN who uh, was very high on the Mets, the writer, who wrote a story about how the Mets are going to be so much better. And one of the things he pointed to was that the Mets, the Mets the last couple of years were good on top. You know, that they were good with like the DeGroms of the world and Pete, you know, in 19 and McNeil guys like that, no problem Conforto. 
But then in, in the middle and below that, you know, they were very soft. And what this guy, I forget his name, the reporter was saying is that the reason he wrote such a glowing piece about the Mets on ESPN.com is that they've shored up their middle and, and lower levels of talent. So this way, and I think we've talked about that on the podcast, that with the Mets, it was, you know, you, you would go from Jacob to Grom and your third starter was Michael Walker or Rick Porcello. I mean, talk about falling off a cliff, you know, and, and it shouldn't be that way this <laughs> year. They've, they've added talent. You know, they have five legitimate starters for bullpen depth. You know, you're thank God not going to see um, some of those guys we've seen like Chris Flexen. And yes, I know he's looked good in Korea and all that, but no, just no. And Corey Oswalt, I mean, frankly, if I never see him again in a Mets uniform, it'll be too soon. I know he's still at the organization, but, um, you know, you're not going to have that. You're going to have established major leaguers like, uh, like Tommy Hunter and, and Montgomery, um, at least available. And, and these guys, these depth pickups, that you may need them, and, and it's good that they're there. That, you know, that, that's my take. Mike, you're looking, I mean, throughout this entire uh, day, uh, you got Villar's name, uh, Guillaume's, uh, Bruce Maxwell, a um, little, a little uh, nod to a Maxwell, but it, they, he, you know, Rich is right and the writer is right. They did add depth there. Um, and even though they struck out with some of the big, bigger time free agents and, uh, you know, drawing the wrath of certain minority of Met fans, uh, it, it would seem that they were, were a little stealth when it came to filling out the roster. Rome wasn't built in a day. Uh, and I don't expect the Mets to just completely renovate uh, the whole system in one off season. There's a lot more work to be done, but so far, so good. Uh, there was a, a plan coming into spring training in the season to acquire play, more players with options, get younger. Uh, this way, the roster could be uh, more maneuverable. Uh, and when you get younger, you tend to get a little healthier. So, you know, we're off in the right direction. Sure, we could be nitpicky and, and be petty over certain things. And those free agent misses, as some fans want to say, Sam, that you bring up, you know, each each one of those can be easily explained away. And uh, for the most part, I'm in agreement with the rationalizations, you know, so far as Springer. I wouldn't have gone a sixth year for him. We want and we need a center fielder. Is he going to be our center? Well, you know, theoretically, would he have been our center fielder four and five years from now? That's questionable, uh, you know, and all that money for Bauer, et cetera, et cetera. You know, again, we, we, we can explain those away. But for the most part, uh, the Mets already had a good foundation, and, and they built well around it. Now spring training, we just need to weed out who comes to Flushing and who goes to Syracuse. Uh, you know, we brought up uh, Sean Reed Foley, and we brought up Atances, and I would only say that we also need to keep things in context insofar as spring training. You know, in Sean Reed Foley, we have somebody, as Rich said, somebody who's actually trying out for a job. He's trying to put his best foot forward. Whereas Dylan Batantis, he's experimenting. So, no, maybe he's not offering his best stuff. Like I said, he's still working on things. So we have to keep that in context. The performance today was not good. It wasn't pretty. But, again, he's working on something different. He's trying to... Uh, change his repertoire. 
So we have to keep that in context, and, and you know, by the end of the month, we'll we'll have a better picture of what he's going to be all about. But uh, I would look at the overall team, the overall performance thus far. You know, with all these names involved, I'm looking at hits versus at bats. They got eight hits, thirty at bats. They drew six walks for a spring training game for as many bodies as you're shifting in and out. That's agreeable. We're only four games in. You know, the first game against the Marlins, that was a low-scoring affair, only five hits. The second game, that was also a low-scoring affair. Game three, you know, a big uptick in production all around from everyone. And today was a more normalized game that we're more familiar in the eight to, you know, eight run range versus four runs for the Nationals. So uh, a week from now, I think we'll be having a very different discussion about a great many ball players. Yeah, that is for sure. And there's one particular ball player that I have a question on, but before we go that route, I want to pass it over to Greg Prince at this point uh, to give his uh, general shameless plug uh, of Greg, we always appreciate you joining us on Amentian Podcast. So please tell everybody where they can find you. Oh, happy to be here. Uh, you can find me uh, if you so choose at faithandfearandflushing.com. Uh, we're winding down a uh, historical countdown this week of the 100 greatest Mets of the 2000s. That's 2000 2009. Uh, kind of a, a speaking of throwbacks, kind of a throwback to uh, our, our founding of Faith and Fear uh, this time of year in 2005. And uh, if you're re- really interested as to, to why somebody has decided to uh, preempt uh, spring training coverage to talk about uh, Dai Sung Koo and Victor Diaz and uh, players of that nature, uh, please visit the blog. And um, Otherwise, uh, you know, I'm I'm on Twitter at uh, Greg underscore Prince, uh, re- reacting badly to ESPN's broadcasts and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go into some of those broadcasts before I bring up this particular player. I'm curious about uh, uh, what what have you enjoyed? You know, just like all of a sudden there's baseball on again, and, and things do. Uh, seem to be going smoothly right now, uh, and and like I said, the numbers do seem to be dipping as more people get vaccines. So first of all, Greg, uh, how are you? Have you gotten a vaccine? And uh, what is your take on baseball currently? Well, uh, so thank you for asking. Uh, I'm fine. I, but uh, by coincidence, I visited my doctor today for a uh, checkup, and he said, "How have you been?" And I said, "No complaints." And he said, "That makes you." Uh, one of the few people who comes into this this office who says that. So I, I feel pretty good about that. Uh, going to be working on getting that vaccine, I hope. Uh, but, yeah, baseball is good for, for what ails you, or even if there's nothing that ails you. Uh, you know, it's, it's a cliche, but, gosh, uh, Tuesday, turning on SNY at 1 o'clock and, and hearing – you know the only uh, the only trio besides you three who who bring me as much Mets joy uh, in Gary Keith and Ron. <laughs> um, it was like com- coming home, and it was like coming home to see people spread out in the stands, hopefully responsibly uh, down in St. Lucie. 
Uh, you know what? I, I don't have to be rushing off to a baseball game anytime soon, but I, I love the idea that there, it appears that there will be people in, in ballparks from coast to coast. Uh, it may be a, a slow process and it may look different, but it'll be better than staring at, at nothing but cardboard cutouts and, uh, you know, and empty seats disguised as fans to, uh, to invert a, a hoary cliche. So, um, you know, like, uh, Mike said, uh, you know, we've seen some high-scoring games, some low-scoring games. We're, we're kind of getting a sense of, of all the Mets can be and all the Mets can worry us with. But, again, it's, uh, it's March and early March, and that's what this is for. So, uh, you know, it's, it's not Moderna, it's not Pfizer, it's not Johnson & Johnson, but uh, I think it inoculates you uh, just as well. Yeah, if only, Rich, uh, baseball could be the COVID vaccine, uh, then they would have been playing the entire the entire time. Uh, but as Mike uh, attests to, it, it's uh, all winter long for him anyway. Uh, but but uh, back to Rich uh, before we we go. This 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 guy Stephen Tarpley, he pitched an inning today, and it's interesting that he doesn't have many innings in the MLB, and I have yet to look at his minors. Uh, numbers, but I don't know where this guy came from. Uh, do you know anything about this guy, Rich? Stephen Tarpley, yeah, he he, um, he was with the Yankees at one point, and he did not have a good season with the Marlins last year. I'm pulling up his numbers. I believe his ERA was um, one of those kind of ungodly numbers. Um, but he, let's see, let's take a quick look here. So last year with the with Miami, yeah, he had a nine ERA. Uh, with the Yankees in 2019, he had a uh, 6.93. But these are all small sample sizes. You know, last year he threw, 12, threw uh, in 12 games for the Marlins, 21 games for the Yankees in 19. So this is a guy who, you, you know, you look at the statistics, but you almost have to take them with a grain of salt because the sample sizes are so small. Last year he threw a total of 11 innings, 19. He threw a total of 24.2 innings. Um, he's averaging more than a hit per inning. So you know, the numbers are not good for him. Um, but from what I've read about him, I think people are high on him. You know, he has good stuff. And I know that seems a bit uh, contradictory to say the guy's averaging more than a hit an inning in his ERA is, is uh, career ERA over uh, three, you know, very small parts of three seasons is 6.65. But he, he's somebody that when I read people who know him better than I, which is basically everybody, um, they say that you know, it's a good pickup. He has good stuff. And, you know, it, it's another example. Of, uh, he's a lefty, right? And, and we all, we've talked about how the Mets are a little thin on lefties in the bullpen. Maybe you have Lucchese. If uh, that's the role he's, he is on the team, then you have him and you have Luke. But um, you may need another at some point. Tarpley could fill that role at some point during the season. So he's another example, although a lot younger, of the kind of Tommy Hunter or Mike Montgomery pickup that, um, that these guys, you know, that they're adding guys with major league experience. And because it certainly looks like, first of all, even if you have a good bullpen, you're going to have injuries at some point and you're going to need to dip into your, your AAA system. And at least here you have, um, you know, you, you have guys with major league experience ready to go. So, 
yeah, I have no problem having him. That old cliche that if you throw left-handed, they'll, they'll find a job for you. So I think he fits into that mold. <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and, it's, and it's nice to have guys, if you have to go down there, at least you have guys who have pitched in the big leagues before. Well, hey, I'm a southpaw. Maybe I should head down to spring training right now and see what there happens. There you go. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and what's really funny is that I was looking at these career stats and not realizing that the spring training setting was on there. Uh, so I thought he had, he, I, I figured he had only gotten 12.2 innings and was probably just basically just coming up, uh, through the minors, but, uh, that makes a lot more sense what you just said, Rich. So I appreciate you making me realize that I had the spring training setting on. Uh, Mike, I want to loop around to Brandon Nimmo and uh, Nimmo today specifically, showing why you you, you can't you know you got to stop betting against him. I've always been in his corner, and I admire his road to the big leagues. Let's not forget how he started playing Legion ball in Wyoming, if I'm not mistaken. So I admire his road to the major leagues, and now that he's here. Uh, I believe he's going to turn 27 this year. So he's entering his prime. You know, he's really had to learn this game uh, in a different manner, uh, a a different manner than, say, the factories of Florida, Texas, and California go about their business. So, you know, that's perhaps maybe why I'm in his corner. He's such a positive individual. Uh, I understand his deficiencies in center field, but again, I'm not willing to overlook his career over 800 OPS. Uh, And for the moment, until you get to the point where you can actually improve upon this, he's my guy. And I'm more than happy to put him in the leadoff spot. Uh, Today, you know, uh, we said Tantus's performance was somewhat of confirmation of what we've been suspecting. Well, today's confirmation for me in what I've been, you know, expecting from Brandon Nimmo, that progressive improvement. And today he had two hits and two at-bats. He drew a walk, and we know he hit a a home run. Uh, You know, a little bit more aggressiveness on the plate is really all I I ask from him this season in so far as offense. Uh, Yeah, we have more demands upon upon him for, for defensive purposes, but offensively, I, I think he's going to surprise more people than not. I really do. Uh, and, you know, you get old and you get a little jaded sometimes, and I'm not one to form favorites, as I may have, you know, done as a younger person. But Brandon Nomo is certainly one of those people. He is one of my favorites, so I wish him well, wish him luck. But, you know, will I improve the position on the drop of a dime if I could? Yeah, hell yeah, Absolutely. But until we get to that point, Nimmo's my guy. Greg, um, you have Brandon Nimmo, Dominic Smith, Jeff McNeil, Pete Alonzo, J.D. Davis, Michael Conforto, uh, all coming into their own quite possibly uh, in what we hope to be the first full year in a long time. Um, And then – and, you know, on top of that, you added pieces like James McCann and Francisco Lindor. And you have all these other little pieces, kind of like a Rafael Santana, to go around the rest of it. The more I think about it from the offensive side of things, uh, this could be 
something that Mets fans haven't seen in a while. Yeah, I mean, we I think we got a taste of it in 2019, uh, the last couple of months of that year. We weren't really able to follow through on that last year. And you can't say they haven't upgraded at shortstop. Um, due, due respect to the uh, dear departed Ahmed Rosario, who, uh, you know, I, I, <laughs> the one thing I'd gotten used to doing during spring training was, was listening to how this was going to be the year uh, that he puts it all together, or for that matter, is the year that uh, they send him out to center field. But my gosh, Lindor, um, you know that 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 is a pinch yourself acquisition. Still, I realize it's happened a couple of months ago, but I'm still pinching myself a little bit and realizing, hey, we we just added him to all these guys who you just listed, as as well as uh, James McCann. So th- this uh, is going to be a tough lineup to pitch to for wh- whoever dares take it on. Um, the, the defense can't help but be better, I would think, with Lindor there, and maybe with uh, you know you, you settle McNeil in at second base, and you know you can cer- certainly uh, de- deconstruct the rest of the field. But uh, you know we're we're not you know on on one hand yes you you want to be full of optimism uh, at, at this time of year, but I don't think we're used to being this optimistic uh, for, from a Mets standpoint. Uh, you know, again, there's 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 things that need to be settled at the uh, at the Raphael Santana level, as, as you call it. But um, it's it's a good looking lineup, uh, and I think it's an intelligent lineup. These are guys who you know know how to hit, not just that they have talent. Uh, guys who I think will figure it out, who will you know learn from whatever, you know, held them back in a, in a given, you know, slump. Uh, that is one of the things, again, you know, now that I've said that, uh, you know, watch them go and hit 222 in April. But nevertheless, uh, that I think is, is you know, uh, in addition to Jacob DeGrom starting every fifth day, that this is the thing you, you, you feel good about counting on and uh, taking it from there. You are listening to a Metsian podcast, and tonight we are joined by Greg Prince of Faith and Fear and Flushing, and we uh, thank you all for joining us this evening. Uh, Rich, you know, Francisco Lindor, that was a snazzy jacket that he was wearing, huh? It was very snazzy, and I think it caused quite a stir. You know, a lot of people, from what I saw on Twitter, were saying, where can I get one like that? Where do you get these vintage jackets, you know, and all that, and... um you know, the best news about Francisco Lindor is that from what we saw, I think it was yesterday or maybe Tuesday, where Sandy said that he anticipates entering into contract negotiations with Conforto and Lindor. Um, because we all know, I mean, that that's the underpinning of the whole deal. If you're able to sign Lindor long-term, then it's like, okay, you know, you, you gave quality. I mean, I, I've always been a Rosario fan. And I'm a huge Jimenez fan. You gave quality, but you got somebody back who's, you know, kind of like a, I'm not sure if he's a generational player, but he's somebody who clearly, you know, has all, multiple all-star games ahead of him in all likelihood. And, and the guy does it all. I mean, although I was a little surprised to see that his defense wasn't ranked well. I, I always thought he was a whiz defensively, but I guess last year, a little bit of an off year defensively. 
Um, and he did have an off year at the plate toward the end and on a very silent postseason. But you have a guy here who, you know, speed, power, all that stuff. He, he's an absolute, he's kind of like a Reyes in the sense that he's a cut up, you know, and, and everybody kind of is drawn to him. So as long as the Mets can sign him long-term, it's just like, okay, you know, we gave quality, we got a lot of quality back and we have that quality for a long, for a long period of time. Obviously this deal, no matter what Lindor does this year, this deal becomes a bad deal if they're not able to re-sign him. And it was encouraging to see that Alderson said that not only does he plan to, uh, you know, negotiate with, with Lindor, but also with, with Conforto and possibly even Syndergaard. So um, I like all of that. I really do. I know that um, I think both the club and the players don't want to engage in these discussions once the season starts. Many don't. So they have about five weeks to get this done. And let's see where that goes. Um, I, I know that uh, you wanted to touch on, and I think this is actually a, a good time to go to Mr. Fred Wilpon joining the stands with a mask on today. Um, what, what, what I like, I, I think it's really refreshing. Now he doesn't have to be like caught talking to the New Yorker while being a fan. <laughs> and, and owning There's an old, I'm sorry, there's an old Honeymooners episode where Ralph has another one of his great ideas. And he goes to Norton looking for an investor. And, and Greg, help me out on this. I forget the exact percentage, but Norton, in his manner, would always say 5% goes to the stockholders. Was it 5%? I don't remember, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> I forget which, which uh, episode exactly it was, but that's what it's all about. Fred still owns 5%, you know, so he still has a seat at the table, uh, an insignificant one, but a seat nonetheless. Uh, it's all right. If he wants to hang out, cool. Why not? Uh, there's no reason why he needs to exit the loop, so to say. Uh, he still has a lot of friends within the organization and in baseball. And let's not forget that Fred and Mr. Cohen, they know each other. Uh, they just didn't meet this year over negotiations, you know, uh, on, on turning over the Mets. No, they've known each other for quite some time. They knew each other back in uh, whenever it was, 2012, when Mr. Wilpon had to sell shares of the team and uh, Mr. Cohen stepped up and bought some of those. So they, they're no strangers to each other. And for all we know, uh, Fred might be here at, Mr. Cohen's invitation. You know, we're not privy to these meetings and conversations. So uh, I don't begrudge Fred being there. Uh, there's no harm in it. And, uh, you know, he's always been a baseball fan. You know, we, we can put aside how he ran this team as owner in that capacity. But he's always been a baseball fan. We know he was a pitcher with Lafayette High School, and he was a Dodger fan, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't begrudge him. Uh, and spring training has always been his thing. He's never been more visible than in spring training. It's during the season when he does this disappearing act, or used to. You know, so uh, I'm okay with it. And he wants to, you know, fist pump and high five and elbow jab with people. That's cool. That's cool. I, I just hope, you know, 
for as much as <laughs> we like to rile on the guy for, you know, the last 20 whatever years it was, uh, I just hope people are respectful and say, hey, Fred, you know, and and don't get really ugly about things and, and say the wrong thing in front of kids and family and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Just be civil. I don't begrudge him being there, Sam. No, uh, I don't think I'd begrudge him either. And, um, Greg, you know, I I think that it's probably more likely that if Fred were sitting with Jeff that people would be a little bit more nasty. Uh, You know, I I think this this shows uh, everybody who called uh, Fred Wilpon, quote, a Dodgers fan in the modern sense – has to step back a bit because he did not fly off to Arizona to watch the Dodgers in spring training. Uh, he's he's still uh, you know still loyal to the orange and blue. Uh, I believe I'm not sure if they kept it up forever, but the D relays uh, had seats at Shea Stadium uh, in the early part of the Doubleday Wilpon years, uh, so they did not disappear and. You might recall that on the final day at Shea Stadium, before they introduced the players, they uh, introduced uh, several dignitaries, and one of them was Lorinda de Roulet, not not so much for uh, her fabulous job running the 1979 Mets, but uh, as representing uh, her mother, Joan Payson. So, you know, as as Mike said, Fred Wilpon still owns a share of the team, and if he wants to uh, continue to watch the Mets and, uh, you know, occasionally I guess uh, tap Steve Cohn on the shoulder and say, hey, I have an idea, and Steve can kind of nod and say, that's great, Fred, good to see you. And uh, they can each go about their business, and Fred's business is simply that of a uh, a well-endowed fan. Um, More power to him, as they say. Uh, You know, I I was never somebody who was particularly virulent about Fred Wilpon. Uh, but I, it's, it's such a nice feeling seeing him in a, shall we say, civilian capacity, because it, it's like he can't hurt us anymore. <laughs> he can't, uh, you know, detract <laughs> from our experience anymore. So uh, you know, welcome to the ballpark, Fred. Uh, see, see you online uh, for the men's room, maybe. Probably not, but uh, we'll see. Uh, so, Rich, uh, Jackie Bradley Jr. did not sign with the Mets. And remind me, he did sign with the Seattle Mariners, was it, or? Brewers. Brewers. The Brewers, uh, pardon me. Um, well, that's how out of the loop with Jackie Bradley Jr. <laughs> I, you know, you see one tweet, you see them all, but that just flashed across my screen. Uh, so, you, you know, they they – we saw a couple center fielders, uh, uh, you know, we saw a center fielder today, I believe, or the other day in Albert Almora Jr. Uh, they have Kevin Pillar now. Do you think that that was uh, the most necessary signing or uh, are, are they really short-sighted here? Well, you know, the interesting thing is um, the interesting thing about JBJ is that he ended up signing two years, 24 million, 12 million a year. That is a far cry from where where we heard his initial, or not even not as of like a few weeks ago, where his contract request was. His contract request a couple of weeks ago was 
reported to be four years, 60 million or 15 million a year. That is a huge difference. Um, And so where I'm coming from with this is if he were willing, obviously time went on, spring training started, so we had to take what he can get. Um, But you wonder if there was some way of, of, you know, doing a time machine here and the Mets knew that that would have been his price, would the Mets have offered him that? I think they would have. I really do. And you think about how that might have affected the otherwise construction of the roster. I mean, would they have still signed Pilar? Would they have signed Almora? Um, Don't know, but it's interesting to speculate on that because Jackie Bradley Jr. to a degree is a perfect fit and to another degree, into another sense, he's not. I mean, he's a perfect fit because if you want to be strong defensively, he is one of the better defensive center fielders in the game. And yes, you could say his metrics have fallen a bit as he's hit 30. Um, but, you know, we know what we see. And, and the guy could still really pick it out in center field. And it's very encouraging to have that. Um, last year, we saw with Nimmo, I mean, he is way below league average as a defensive center fielder. So in that sense, shoring up the defense, which I think this team needs an incredible upgrade defensively still, as well as they need some base running lessons. I've always felt that way, but anyway. Um, so with Jackie Bradley Jr., who would have been a great fit for that, he's a left-handed batter, which means he's not really a platoon candidate with Nimmo because they'd both be left-handed batters. So in that sense, he wasn't the greatest. He wasn't a perfect fit, but he was a good fit. And you wonder if the Mets, if there was only a way that, that he would have known, Jackie Bradley would have known, that his market would end up at uh, – 12, uh, 12 million a year for two years if he would have signed with the Mets and how that might have affected the roster and what impact that may have had. Of course, we'll never know. We're speculating, but it's interesting to see that what he ultimately signed for really wasn't close to what he wanted as recently as, you know, early February. And, and this is, you know, you kind of want these books out there sometimes like I I just you want a little bit more of the details of this side of baseball that we completely miss Um, Mike I'm going to send this over to you in the Jackie Bradley Jr. context with something that you posed prior to uh, uh, us getting on air and you you said I'm throwing the following names in the hat Matt Den Decker Jr. Matt Den Decker Jr., excuse me. Matt Den Decker, Andres Torres, Eric Young Jr., Scott Harrison, Marlon Bird. Now I'll add Kevin Pillar and Albert Almora Jr., all signed by Sandy Alderson. You guys make sense of it. <laughs> I mean, I'll take a quick stab at it. If you have to look at context, oh, there, Mike, right? you there? Have... We saw Mike. Oh, let's see. So far as Jackie Bradley I Jr. Think, uh, Mike, there, there you are. Mike, we got you. We got you back, Mike. Unfortunately, Mike's uh, call had dropped, and I didn't see it until now. That is live baseball podcasting for you. Mike, welcome back. Go ahead. I thought you recovered me without a, sh- uh, w- without a hitch because I, I got disconnected. I called back. I got back into the queue, and uh, – I thought I picked up without a hitch, but uh, there seems to be a little bit of delay. You learn something every day. Uh, what I was going to say in Jackie Bradley Jr., you know, uh, I wasn't moved. That wasn't enough for me to move away from Brandon Nimmo. 
And that's what I mean. I'm not interested in a lateral transfer per se. And that's, to me, what JBJ represented. Not a terrible upgrade offensively. Yes, defensively. And, Rich, you know, we've hammered that point home of being about strong up the middle. Uh, But here's a situation where uh, it wasn't enough. JBJ just wasn't enough for me uh, to inspire me to make that move. It just wasn't. Not at his price. Not that it's my money. Uh, but I, I need a significant upgrade from Nimmo. And maybe that's because I like the guy. But go ahead. I threw all those names out there, and my main point was these are all Sandy Alderson hirings or signings and acquisitions. And uh, there's just something that just makes me go, uh And this goes back to what Sam brings up about the hits and misses insofar as the free agency market. It just seems rich as a little bit of the old here that seems to be blow, bleeding over insofar as Sandy, Ald- Sandy Alderson's methods. Perhaps those were my expectations getting away from me. Take it away. I, I think uh, you bring up a lot of interesting points and, um, First, I just I just want to throw out there, and we can debate this, you know, in any digression at any point. But Eric Young Jr., Scott Harrison, and Marlon Bird, I still think like had varying degrees of success uh, out of these names, and obviously Kevin Plar and Albert Almora Jr. are uh, to be determined. Um, but Greg, you know, just in terms of what he said, um, I think. There, there is some truth to it in terms of Sandy Alderson, and, and maybe that's kind of the idea of the transfer of power that will eventually happen, of course, uh, as this new front office under a new regime gets, you know, starts to transition and, and, and become, uh, you know, settle in. Um, what, what, what say you, Greg? Well, I thought it was all, well, I don't think he was wrong, but I thought it was a little disturbing what Sandy Alderson said the other day, uh, I guess, regarding the Mets' pursuit of George Springer. Said, uh, you know, even Steve Cohen runs out of money at some point. Um, that's not the deal with Steve Cohen, quite frankly. That's not why we were so excited to get to know Steve Cohen and have him in our lives. Uh, the idea that you couldn't go hard as hard as it would have taken to get Springer, and it's a you know it's a different uh, question as to whether you know, they really needed Springer count on him in center field for six years. But um, the idea that if they'd gone after Springer, well there there goes Conforto and there goes Lindor after this year, uh, and I don't know how much of that is you know again I'm not, I'm not trying to uh, as as they, uh, somebody said in Mad Men count other people's money. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's constantly demanding that uh, Steve come buy me things. But um, I'd like to think we're past that point where it's, you know, it's Monty Hall, let's make a deal, we can choose behind one of the curtains. Uh, I'd like to think that we can choose behind all of the curtains if, if it makes sense. And if you could have had George Springer uh, for six years, you really couldn't have figured out a way to have also signed Michael Conforto. 
and Francisco Lindor for another few years, but uh, maybe I'm being naive there. Uh, listen, we've had a lot of Sandy Alderson specials uh, come through the door, uh, especially in center field. Um, you know, I, I always chalked it up to a certain degree to the resources he had to work with. Um, I'm curious now to see how much of it is simply a matter of this is a Sandy Alderson type of choice uh, where we're in the early going. And I, you know, I think Alderson wants to kind of pull back anyway. At some point he wasn't planning on being this involved until the Jared Porter hiring imploded. And I suppose we'll see what Zach Scott means to a, a team. But, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting to me that, you know, just to go back, Sam, to what you said before about this, you know, this core of, of, of players who we've come to really like, uh, how long they will stay together. I, I think we, we've all grown to some degree attached to them. But we also see, you know, the, the trend in sports is, is and again, baseball is different from other sports, but we've seen a trend in sports where tomorrow isn't what it used to be. Uh, where you worried about you know trading draft picks in, in other sports and you know having your team stay together, uh, we saw with the Lakers and we saw with the Bucks. Uh, let's just get the superstar in here. Let's uh, ask the superstar if he can get some of his friends in here and uh, let's win a championship. Um, you don't really think that way in baseball. Uh, I want these guys to stay together. Um, and for the most part, Trevor Bauer accepted. Uh, you see guys who, who want to sign for the long term uh, as opposed to a, a short burst of money and then uh, try their luck again. So, um, you know, beyond the uh, the horizon of the, the Almoras and PRs, uh, PLRs, excuse me, I was getting VR and PLR a little confused. But uh, beyond that horizon, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll be curious to see uh, with Steve Cohn, Knockwood, not running out of money, um, you know, how they go about putting together a team on an annual basis. And if you can, in fact, put a team together to stay together, if that's really how baseball will continue to work. Rich, he mentioned the the, uh, golden ticket for me in terms of the conversation, because I was going to start this off with Trevor Bauer, who would have put the Mets over the tax luxury. Um, you know, Steve Cohen made his billions by being smart with money. And maybe he's also one of the reasons he brought Sandy Alderson in because he knew that he would be smart with money. But now you have a different type of smart with money than you did under the Wilpon regime. Now, mind you, you still see some of these same old habits as we're talking about. Um, but let's say you know, at some point, you know, you don't want to be wasting money, like I said. So at some point, so so basically, like, do you look at it like George Springer versus Francisco Lindor, and who would you rather have? You know, just a quick comment on, on you know, all the names that we threw out. I, you know, I think you have to consider context there. And I, I'm neutral on Santa. I always have been. But I think if you consider context, Scott Harrison was brought in in 2012 when the team was rebuilding. But he was just some. They, let, let, we know what they were doing in 2012, 2013. They were collecting bodies to put a team on the field. They were not trying to win. They were trying to rebuild. And um, and in 2013, you know, in June they got EYJ, uh, 
uh, he had been designated for assignment for Colin McHugh, who had also been designated for assignment. So really it was a, a swap of parts that their teams did not think, you know, they had to use for anymore. Uh, Marlon Bird, same thing, you know, picked up for the 2013 season right after Sandy made the comment outfield, what outfield, I don't have an outfield. So you, know, you just have to consider, I think the guys they picked up this year, Almora and Pilar, I think they're, they were much different. They're not here to, you know, start and just try to keep a team on the field, a, some semblance of a team on the field. These guys are role players that they picked up. They're meant to be complementary pieces on what should be a winning team. Um, so, you know, just, just, a, just a quick comment. And, Sam, what was the original question again? No, just, I guess, uh, in terms of being smart about money, does that mean having to pick right, between right. George Springer for six years and having a long-term deal with Francisco Lindor? Well, that, that's a real thing, you know. Um, the competitive balance tax, luxury tax, we want to call it, I've heard people say it functions as a salary cap. I don't really agree with that. I think in, in ways it does. It's a deterrent to spending, but it's not a cap like, you know, like they have in the other sports. So um, it does function that way. It is a real thing. Whether you want to call it a, acting as a cap or acting as a deterrent, the fact is, if you, you can't spend willy nilly, you know, there are consequences for spending willy nilly and, and that's, that's what could happen. And they, you do have to make choices. And even the Yankees and the dot, well, the Dodgers seem to not really care, but even the Yankees are making choices these days. So um, I think that's real. I think that's valid. I, I, you know, you can't have everybody and there's a competitive balance tax for a reason. You know, most teams, uh, the Dodgers are really the only team I could think of that would be an exception seem to care. Um, so I don't think the Mets are, are really out of line by taking the approach of, look, we want, we'll spend right to the cap and we'll go over midseason if we have to. But, you know, we, we don't want to necessarily start paying the luxury tax. So I, I, think, that's, I think that's fair. I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, and, and, you know, and then goodness knows what's going to happen after this season. I mean, it, it's – Will there be baseball in 2022? I mean, there, there's going to need to be very contentious labor negotiations. Will there be a competitive balance tax? Don't know. What level will it be? Will there be a salary cap? Don't know. You know, so my point is this conversation we're having right now is for this year and this year only because goodness knows what it's going to look like after this year. And Sam, if I could jump in, because Rich, I think you bring up mm -hmm. a great point about the upcoming CBA and those negotiations. And a great majority of these present-day New York Mets are, are only signed through next year and no later than 2020. This is a very transient team as it stands at this very moment. They might be, you know, thinking of something entirely different than we suspect. I'm just saying that a great majority of these players are only signed through next year and the following. Uh, without extensions being made. And that CBA, as you say, Rich, you know, a, a potential for uh, a salary cap, you know, this luxury tax or any other form of tax or whatever uh, is going to be enhancing or prohibiting salary, will it, that remains to be seen. But this team, as presently constituted, is a transient one, I believe. Mm-hmm. Well, Mike, I'm going to throw it back to you after this, though. Uh, 
speaking of choices, uh, Sandy Alderson didn't necessarily have a choice in having Edwin Diaz on his team right now, but that is how it stands. And uh, they probably do have the choice to give him the chance to show that he is the closer of this team. Uh, But you recently wrote about Edwin Diaz on your blog. A little bit. You know, we obviously know 2019 was a bad year. Let's call it for what it is. In fact, it was very bad. Uh, And last year was a good year, a bounce-back year, a productive year, an effective year. The difference between the two was 2019 was a long regular season. And last year's fine performance only took place over the course of 26 appearances and 25.2 innings pitched. So what do we make of that? Which Edwin Diaz are we going to get in 2021? That's the million-dollar question. Uh, throughout his career, his fa- he's a two-pitch pitcher. He's a fastball slider. And his velocity has uh, stayed relatively the same throughout his career as, as his slider. He's growing up. Last year as a 26-year-old, Diaz is a 97.8-mile-an-hour fastball and an 89.6-mile-an-hour slider represented career highs. At the same time, he applied a change in craftsmanship where he threw his fastball at a career low for the first time of 61.5%. And not coincidentally, he increased utilization of his slider by a full 4% to 37.9 of the time. So like Stroman, perhaps like DeGrom, and perhaps like Carrasco, he's undertaking a repertoire change, maybe not so much in pitches, but in frequency when he delivers them. And I don't know if you guys agree with me or not, but when I watched Diaz in 2019, I had flashbacks to David Cohn because that three-quarter sidearm delivery slider compromises it, and, you know, they offer up Frisbees that have smashed me written all over it. And last year, that seems he gave up two home runs, like I said, in 25.2 innings pitch. If you project that over a season... You know, we're talking about eight home runs surrendered versus 15 the previous season. So I would also make a point insofar as, uh, what's the word I want to use? Uh, Sequence. He came here, had a bad year. Last year was a good year. So we can call that a rebound. If it was the other way around, if he came here and had a good season first, and last year turned out disastrously, Mm -hmm well, then we would be talking about a major fall-off. But that's not the correction. We're on the improvement side of this, this, of this discussion. And, again, his arm is live, is very lively. He's never had any indication of injury uh, or ailments that have taken away from his velocity. His position has remained consistent throughout. He doesn't get down. 
So that means he's tough-skinned. And one last bit of information I'll throw out there that I think, insofar as 2019 versus 2020 and his improvement, in 2019, his offerings resulted in a 43.4% poll rate. And we know about all the home runs that resulted in that. Last year, that number plummeted to a 31.1% poll rate. At the same time, batters were going the opposite way, a career-high 40.9% of the time versus only 20%, 27% from two years ago. And to me, I interpret that as batters uh, being behind on his pitches, and I believe that a career-low 25% hard-hit metric supports this. So we just very well may get the Edwin Diaz that BBW anticipated and the Edwin Diaz that we saw perform while with the Seattle Mariners. I'm crossing my fingers because without him, we know how difficult the road to the pennant will be. This man can make or break the season. Him, along with Betanzas, Familia, and Gesellman, who formed the meat and potatoes of this bullpen, but more so Diaz, because Trevor May isn't going to be able to do everything. So Diaz, I'm hoping and I'm thinking, pending, if these metrics continue to flow the way they've been, we're going to see a good season, I hope. That was a lot of stuff, but there you go. You are listening to a Metsian podcast, and we are so thankful that you are. Our guest tonight is Greg Prince of Faith and Cure and Flushing. And, Greg, before we move on to the historical chapter of our show, uh, let's, I'd like to round it out, basically, with uh, Edwin Diaz. Uh, what say you, and what did you see in his – I believe that he's only been – he's pitched once or twice. You know, listening to Mike has uh, made me a lot more sanguine about uh, Edwin Diaz because in the mind's eye, uh, a ball has just been hit and it's still going. And I, I'm looking at his numbers <laughs> from last year. And I see, you know, he gave up two home runs. Uh, they they both were, were sort of killer home runs against teams you don't want to lose to. But, uh, you know, he really did tame that as the, the season progressed. And, you know, his September uh, was very good for a team whose September uh, wasn't so hot. So, you know, not, not that, uh, that this is Edwin Diaz's problem, but to the extent that Bertie Van Wagenen has, has a legacy in New York, it's sort of up to uh, – to Edwin Diaz, because although there were other moves and uh, one very important extension with Jacob DeGrom, who I, I think Van Wagenen uh, certainly played a huge role in getting that done, uh, you know, Kelnick for Cano is always going to be the epitaph of the Van Wagenen regime, unless Edwin Diaz, you know, becomes the Edwin Diaz we waited for him to become. And, you know, the one X factor, perhaps. Zedwin Diaz didn't have to pitch in front of anybody last year, uh, which might have gone a long way toward calming him down. 
uh, once the fans are no longer made out of corrugated cardboard, uh, I will be interested to see how Diaz handles that. Uh, you know, he's certainly <laughs> pitched well in front of people uh, in Seattle. Uh, we hope he can do it in New York. And uh, I'm, I'm going to uh, going to be optimistic that there, there are save opportunities for Diaz, uh, as opposed to the, the middle of that bullpen uh, kind of letting it get away because, uh, you know, that there are some question marks there. Um, you know, we're, we're, we will be waiting on Seth Lugo to come back. And uh, I, you know, Mike mentioned Trevor May. I'm uh, excited to see what he can do. But yeah, you don't. No, no, nothing kills a season uh, more than a ninth inning lead getting away in the second game of the year and everything rolling downhill from there, which is what happened last year. T- tiny little year that it was. But uh, you know, Edwin Diaz, you know, to his credit, uh, didn't. Uh, get caught in that morass and uh, gave us an idea of what he could do and, and why he seemed little like a fair trade for, for one of the top prospects in baseball, uh, you know, because, you know, we, we all told ourselves it's not about Cano, it's about Diaz. And uh, we, we hope it will continue to be in a, in a good way. Rich, whether we're talking about Edwin Diaz uh, or anybody else in this bullpen, I guess once again, you know, whether it's the Wilpons or Cohen, uh, the bullpen is going to be the crux of this team. It it probably will be. You know, I I think you know that um, you'll have a good offense with the Mets. You know, I think that that's pretty obvious. They have a very long, very deep lineup. I think you also know that the starting pitching will likely be very good. Obviously, you have the best pitcher in baseball at the top. Uh, but with Stroman, Carrasco, Walker, and Peterson, I, I think you have a solid rotation. I think the, the gentleman from ESPN, the nameless gentleman I referred to earlier, was saying that the Mets have the, the opportunity to be, you know, if one of the best, if not the best rotations in the National League. So you've got that. The X factor to me will be the sort of like the special teams in football, right? With a bullpen the base running and the defense. Those are the X factors. And the bullpen certainly is, is the top of the list. You know, one thing I've, I've heard, and they said it during the game today, is that Luis Rojas has said that he might use multiple closers. Well, well can someone fill me in on who those people are? Because who, who's, who's this other person? Trevor May may be, okay, he's done a little bit of closing in his career. But who else? I mean, you're going to go to Familiar or Batances? I, I Ed, as Mike and Greg have said, Edwin Diaz is going to be the closer. I, I don't understand where these other people are coming from. I mean, Lugo maybe when he comes back, but Diaz is there to be the to be the closer. And you know what, Mike? I think you raise a good point. You know, he will have as much impact as any other individual player on this team possibly can, because. You could get we, – we've seen it. You know, we saw it early in 2019. We saw it late in 2020. He could be dominant. He could be untouchable. Um, we saw what happens when he doesn't – when he loses the slider. He doesn't want to throw it. He's throwing really hard, 99 miles an hour, absolutely. But they know it's coming, and they hit it out of the ballpark. So, if we could get something like the 2018 Edwin Diaz or something like the September 2020 Edwin Diaz, Imagine the difference on this team and its record between that and the 2019 Edwin Diaz, right? Huge swing there. 
And I'm not buying into this idea that there will be multiple closers. I don't know if you guys want to freeform that. I don't see where it is on on the roster. I, I think he might just be trying to take some of the pressure off of Diaz um, because there isn't another closer. You know, unless if he's pitched three days in a row, maybe Lugo. But I, I don't see it being a split role. Well, here's the problem. I mean, last year was too short, too small of a sample. But in 2019, Edwin Diaz had 33 save opportunities. The rest of the bullpen had 32 opportunities. I think what Rojas says is correct. There's going to be plenty of save opportunities for the rest of this bullpen. I think what, you know, what he said was a little misleading in that he's going to decide who, when, and where. But, you know, that number in 2019 was almost split down the middle, a difference by one. 32 opportunities for Diaz, excuse me, 33 for Diaz, and 32 for everyone else. And remember, we remember those bad stretches. Uh, Gaselman was 0 for 5 in save opportunities. There was a stretch where Seth Lugo was perhaps one for six, and the rest of the bullpen was blowing saves left and right, right along with Diaz. But the opportunities were almost split down the middle. Anybody else? Greg, do you want to? Uh, just one more thing I think we have to keep in mind is that the bullpen, and I don't just mean the Mets bullpen, is such a creature in evolution right now in baseball because we, we – probably instinctively come at it from the idea of a starting pitcher going seven, eight innings. And we know that, you know, six innings is suddenly kind of a stretch. Maybe not for everybody on this staff. And we hope that everybody builds up and we can just kind of see the baseball that I think we all prefer, which is strong starting pitching leading into your best release pitching. But we saw so much in the postseason, the teams that succeeded last year, uh, you know, where, you know, starting pitcher was almost an honorific and it was one relief pitcher after another. And, they, you know, maybe you can do that in, in a short series out of desperation, or maybe you can do it here and there, but that's going to wear on a bullpen. And I, I think one of the things we've seen, with the Mets bullpen of the past couple of years, especially last year, and again with the caveat that last year was a peculiar animal, was just the churn of one middle reliever after another here and gone and back over and over again. So if we are we're, we're kind of assuming I think that that we're gonna get to the ninth inning with games that look like you know we're used to. But I guess the, the the question is, you know, will it work that way? Will we actually see? I and mean, we've seen a little bit of it. Got guys who I think we, we consider to be, say, seventh inning, eighth inning guys coming in fourth innings. Um, and sometimes that's, you know, one of those things you, you sort of cheer because you, you, you like the idea of getting the big out when you need the big out and not saving guys for spots that might not come around. But... Um, you know, it, it, it's hard to, to roadmap this, I think, uh, without knowing exactly where. And I don't know if it's it's kind of a groupthink thing, where you know, or, or the Mets are just going to do what the Mets do, or everybody's going to look to Tampa Bay and say, hey, it's working for them. Um, 
so I, I, I think that that's, it's going to be, and I, I don't really know. It's going to be interesting to see how, how roles shake out and if, you know, roles are roles. And again, a lot of it is dependent upon whether you're going to that bullpen in the fifth inning or the seventh inning. And, you know, those two innings uh, every single night practically begin to add up. And that's where we, I think we begin to see the, the stress have its worst impact. And, uh, you know, not knock wood, I think the third time I've knocked wood tonight, but, uh, you know, not knock wood, we get to the ninth inning and we can just say, hey, Edwin, it's, it's your, your time to slam the door. So um, it, it'll, it will not only be interesting, it might be more interesting than we wish it to be. You have been listening to a Metsian podcast with Sam Rich and Mike, and our guest tonight has been Greg Prince of Faith and Fear in Flushing. Um, and this is the 74th official edition of a Metsian podcast. And uh, without further ado, we segue to our historical side of things. And, and um, Greg, you know, uh, no offense to Chris Matza, who apparently is the only one to have won number 74 in Mets history. Uh, we will not be focusing on him tonight. We'll be focusing on the 1974 New York Mets, and I, I want to go to you to start this because I know that you were really in the thick of of becoming the Mets fan you are today at this time. So when you look at the 1974 Mets and you see that they had a 71-91 record after taking the A's to the brink, what went wrong? That was the first truly depressing year of my fandom. Uh, having come along in 69 and having uh, always enjoyed uh, teams with winning records and at least the specter of contending. And of course, you know, culminating in 1973 where they barely had a winning record, yet they managed to contend and uh, win a division uh, at the very end of the season and go to the World Series and take on Oakland uh, right to the, uh, the ninth inning of the seventh game. Uh, basically what I remember about the 74 Mets is they were like the 73 Mets, but there wasn't much to believe in. They had, they hadn't really upgraded. Uh, if you were to compare the rosters from 73 to 74, the only thing you really notice different is that Willie Mays is no longer there. He was retired and, you know, had been sort of on his last legs as it was, um, you get the sense that the Mets had kind of almost given up on the idea that they needed to improve that, Hey, we got pretty lucky or they, you know, you, you could look at 73 as, you know, we got our guys back late in the year, you know, a famously injury riddled and slumbered team that got it all together. Well, but we'll just ride that. And it didn't work. And, you know, you, you got to late August of 74 with nothing going particularly well, but you had the same record that you did in 73, and the, the division wasn't, you know, a free-for-all of teams falling all over each other, but you kind of held out hope that, well, now if the Mets can just get hot, they can make their big run, but, you know, <laughs> you don't get to do that every year. So it was... I, I, I hate to look at it this way, but when you look at, at that period, 73, 74, uh, they're kind of 
you know, one long year except for six weeks. In 1973, they were really fantastic. And the rest of the time, they, they were, you know, kind of getting old. And with a couple of exceptions of of, uh, of players who were coming along. So that, that was, I, I think that was a year of begrudging transition, uh, looking back on it. And, um, you know, let, let us not overlook the, the one major storyline of 1974, as I lived it, which was Tom Seaver was hurting uh, for the first time in his career. He, I don't think he went on the disabled list, and it wasn't his arm, but he, he was having a sciatica problem. And, you know, the, the big story that year was what's wrong with Tom Seaver. And it, it, it's interesting, the, uh, the the metrics that we go by now that didn't exist then, uh, you know, several years ago when the war was coming into fashion, I had pointed out to somebody, man, Tom Seaver, you know, had that one bad year in 74 and the person on the other end of this conversation looked at the, the, uh, you know, the interior numbers, as they say, and said, Seaver wasn't bad. And and sure enough, if you, you go on baseball reference, you see that, you know, he was still, because even at his not best, he was still, you know, one of the best pitchers in the game, but there's no escaping that a 3.20 ERA, in 1974 was not Seaver-like, and an 11-11 record was not Seaver-like. And when they won 11 games more the next year, I remember Jack Lang, uh, the Mets beat writer, wrote, were the Mets 11 games better, or was Tom Seaver 11 games better? Because he won 22-9 and that year. Of course, that year they also made a ton of changes. That that was a not, – not, not to get ahead of your 75th episode, but I, I think the, the – the, 74-75 offseason was a reaction to the fact that there was nothing going on in 73-74. In fact, they changed general managers uh, at the end of 74. Um, you know, 74 should have been a uh, – and I guess in a way, whether it was intended to be or not, it was kind of a victory lap for the, for the, uh, the 73 team, the holdovers from the 69 team. And, you know, there was no time for a victory lap because, you know, you still had the Pirates in the division. You still had the Cardinals in the division who, who fought it out to the very last uh, series. So um, it was kind of, like I said, it was kind of a sad year. Um, I also, uh, you know, it, it was Tug McGraw's last year as a Met. And they never really examined him closely and realized that um, – there was an injury that needed to be fixed, which was why he, he was for two years, except for those six weeks in 73, you know, in, in this inexplicable slump. Uh, because, you know, when we think about 73, you think about you got to believe and, and, and Tug leading the way. The reason, you know, the, the roots of that is that he was one of the best relievers in baseball for three years prior to 73. So what was wrong with Tug came back to haunt them in 74, uh, the, the one name I, I will add and uh, stop talking at 74, uh, a, a guy who I think today would be considered, that his season would be considered a DeGrom-like was Don Matlack. But uh, if you yeah. go back yeah. and look at his September <laughs> of 74, it's amazing. I don't think he gave up more than two runs in any start. Um, they never scored for him. And we say that all, you know, throughout history, we always say they never scored, but really Matlack, um, and I have to credit a, a writer 
used to be with Amazing Avenue. I don't think he still is named Alex Nelson wrote an article years ago saying like, you know, in modern times, look at John Matlack's career or 74 to excuse me, that, that season, that's a Cy Young season. But because he went 13 and 15, he got zero votes uh, because that was how baseball, you know, viewed pitchers in those days. If you had a losing record, let alone not 20 wins, you were not considered to have had a good year, even though he actually made the all-star team that year. So you you still had the pitching. You know, Kuzman had a really nice bounce back. Kuzman always seemed to be bouncing back from like the early '70s. He had an arm injury, and he would go. You know, he would really come into focus in '76 when when he would finally win uh, 21 games. And you know, you you had Seaver who you know had his one legitimate off year. So you know, the, the Mets who were always about the starting pitching you know, and the big three in those days, they more or less did what you can hope for. You know especially given Seaver sciatica, but they there was not a lot of support for them, not not in a you know, not not in a hitting standpoint, which is always the case with the Mets in those days. And, you know, no depth in the pitching behind them. And, you know, McGraw had a, had, a, had an awful year and uh, you know, he would be traded, which would, you know, break break a lot of hearts. Uh I, I in some way uh, c- continue to still do. And uh, you know, the lineup uh, again, essentially the same guys who gave us 1973, um, you know, n- nothing really percolated there. J- John Miller had had some good numbers. Rusty Stoff had some good numbers. Um, throughout a lot of base runners, I recall. Um, you know, just a, a lot of guys you loved, especially fewer as, as I was 11 years old in 1974, and guys you look back on fondly because of what they did in, in other years. But you, you put it all together, and it's like, Gee, you know, I, I thought uh, I'll, I'll close with this. I, I thought that uh, when I got my first Mets team card in 1970, and I looked at the back of the card, and it had their annual records, which was all news to me. All I knew about them was that they won in 1969, and I saw all these, you know, 40 and 120, 51 and 111, and all the way through 73 and 89 in 1968. I think, my God how off it must be that to root for a team that has a losing record. Well, in 1974, I, I was welcome to a, a glimpse of my future as a Mets fan come, uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, a way of life in the late 70s and early 80s and, you know, for, for periods thereafter. But, uh, you know, there, there, was, there was a certain, you know, stability. I, I guess that's a nice way. That's the sort of thing they would put in the highlight film, like a year of stability, as opposed to the fact that they, they just kept the same guys and lost 91 games. But, you know, when, when you're a kid, especially, you know, this was the last years of the reserve clause, which, you know, I didn't know anything about. But, uh, you know, guys weren't leaving every year uh, to become free agents. And then not that it wasn't a corrupt system, but it's the same that when you're 11 years old and you know you're going to be seeing, you know, Teddy Martinez and Ken Boswell and Felix Neon and Bud Harrelson and Wayne Garrett and Cleon Jones, all those guys uh, every year, it's sort of comforting. You don't realize it, but, uh, you know, it's what gets you hooked on a team. So, uh, you know, no, 74 was kind of a downer, but, uh, you know, the season ended. They named a new general manager. They started making trades, and uh, it was both a, a new era upon us for '75, but also, you know, just still a core there from '74 and before. So, uh, 
you know, one one bad year, to, you know, speaking for myself, one bad year did not stop me from living for the Mets, nor have a couple dozen other bad years since then. <laughs> and you uh, you went for it with uh, the DeGrom like, you know, I was looking at the line here and John Matlack, uh, 13-15 with a 241 ERA, 265.1 innings pitch. Uh, Rich, you know, when looking at this era, generally your eyes always go to the pitching. I mean, how can you not? And going to Tom Seaver, he got 236 innings out of this uh, with a 320 ERA uh, and an 11-11 record. Um, Jerry Kuzman was 15-11 with a 336 ERA, 265 innings pitched. George Stone was indeed awful. Um, but Tug McGraw had a 416 ERA with a 6 and 11 win loss record. Uh, and we also, I'll leave with this, I'll finish with this before passing it on to you. Craig Swan, uh, he, he was 23 years of age, and I'm guessing this is the first Craig Swan sighting with a 445 ERA this year. Yeah, young Craig Swan, imagine that. Um, you know, but, but I, I basically would, would agree agree with everything Greg said about the 74 team. I mean, it was the biggest buzzkill going, you know, you go from the, the exhilarating run in 73. It's like, Oh, you know, it sucks that lost to the A's, but we'll be back. You know, how much fun, you know, great off season and great off season sense that, you know, you felt energized about the team. Like Greg said, not a lot of moves were made, but coming off of uh, game seven of the world series and, and ready to ride that in, you know, Mike and I talked about how, the 74 yearbook was one of the best with the pennant, um, you know, from 73 over flying over Shea. And you just felt energized. And then they go out there and, and you know, the whole season they laid an egg basically. Um, it, Seaver being 11 and 11, you know, that doesn't compute coming off of the Cy Young award year. Uh, how did that happen? Right. But, um, but I think, you know, Greg explained that. Uh, Kuzman had a good year and, and right about Matt Lack. If you look at Matt Lack, the peripheral numbers he had, you know, his whip was 1.19, which 1.11, I should say, which was really good, 1.119. Um, his ERA plus of 149 is outstanding. Um, you know, and he, he gave up 7.5 hits per nine innings, which is great. Um, and, he, you know, struck out 195 batters. Great peripheral numbers. And what does that tell you? It tells you that the team couldn't score for him, like, like has been said already. And then speaking of scoring – my main guy, Rusty Saab, had a decent year. You know, average a little low at 258, but he but he belted 19 home runs, which back then was, you know, that was pretty good. It, it doesn't equate to today's numbers. Cleon Jones actually had a decent year as well. You know, he had 282. It was probably his last good year. His power was down at 13 home runs and 16 RBIs. But, you know, you, you were seeing you were seeing the – vestiges of the 69 team and even the 73 team starting to, whether they showed their age or what have you. Um, and typical Mets, you know, between in that early set, early to mid seventies era, good pitching, couldn't hit a lick. Um, one of my other main guys, Felix Neon hit 268. Um, so yeah, I mean, what I would say about that team is when you're a kid and your team goes all the way to the world series, you have that exhilarating run, and then this happens in 74, where you're 20 games below 500. It's a complete buzzkill, you know. But, but by that point, we were all hooked, and we were going to keep coming back every year. And, um, you know, it, it was just a, a down season for a lot of reasons. But 
just a down season coming off of, you know, one of the more exciting ones they had had. Mike, uh, going with the franchise, Tom Seaver, you look at the home runs, and he gave up 19 in this, this season. I guess you could also look at 236 innings. Uh, but still, for Tom Seaver, yeah, I can see why the conversation was being had. Yeah, I didn't care. Let me tell you something. I was probably a little bit more happier than the crew here assembled this evening. Uh, I, I was in my glory. I really was. I was a young kid. 1974 was interesting. 1973, I was still getting force-fed uh, for my aunts and uncles and really getting indoctrinated into the game of baseball. And they were the ones leading me by the hand, you know, making sure I got to the games and they were educating me. And I, I have my my select memories of 1973, mostly because of them. 1974, I'm taking full responsibility for my fandom. I'm watching games to the very last out. Um, me and my father are living at Chase Stadium because in, starting in 74 and into 75, the Mets and Yankees played at Chase Stadium because Yankee Stadium was under renovation. So, you know, my father was a Yankee fan. I'm a Mets fan. So we spent an awful lot of time there. And my father was a huge Tom Seaver fan as well. So he always wanted to be there for those games. But me personally, I'm thrilled. I'm still thrilled to see uh, John Milner was in the midst of becoming a a giant for me. He really was. Uh, And I'm still thrilled to see or being able to see Cleon Jones and Grody and, as Rich said, Felix Mian and Buddy Harrelson and the pitching staff, especially Kuzman, Seaver, Matlack. Uh, but as Rich, uh, excuse me, as Greg says, this team, I think, was still in a somewhat suspended state of animation after the passing away of Gil Hodges. And, you know, a lot of what transpired in 74, insofar as this losing record 71 to 91, uh, was getting taken out on Yogi Berra, uh, rightly or wrongly, uh, and, Greg, I want you to answer to some of this. You know, going back to 73, we know Willie Mays didn't necessarily agree with some of Yogi Berra's decisions insofar as he was utilizing him. And, uh, you know, rumor has it that Tom Seaver was advocating for the dismissal of Yogi Berra. And Cleon Jones wasn't necessarily in his corner either. Uh, so Yogi Berra, uh, you know, the, the pressure was mounting upon him. Uh, but me personally, as a baseball fan, I was having a great time. Uh, the fact that they had a losing record probably flew over my head because I was just so thrilled to be there seeing these guys. And, and you know, when you're that young, you're you're very impressionable. And, Rich, you know, we've discussed many times Rusty Staub, Tug McGraw, you know, there are my Mount Rushmore. And I can't limit it to four, but those two guys, without a doubt, are up there. And John Milner, you know, was becoming a, a, a titan for me as, as a kid. So, uh, yeah, I was having a great time. And uh, but yeah, it was a transition, uh, a transi- transitory. I didn't even get it right that time. Year for the club, uh, they probably passed me by, uh, and that's perhaps a good thing. Uh, and then, you know, the seasons went on and 76 turned out to be special for me, but we'll get to that in the future. Uh, but Greg, if you can, 
you know, just educate us a little bit into the interrelationship between Yogi and perhaps Willie Mays, Tom Seaver, and Cleon Jones. Well, I, I think the best way I can put it, to look at the, the, the person of Yogi Bear as a manager, is that Yogi Berra's greatest asset was his calm. And whether it was coming out of spring training in 72, you know, when the Mets world was, you know, upside down, having lost Gil Hodges, and it was something, you know, Yogi Berra sticking over was on something he never campaigned for, or, or whether it was, you know, be, being almost out of it, but not quite out of it in the, you know, the end of August of 73, you know, Yogi Berra calm, don't panic, write these guys in every day, they're going to come through, was a terrific asset. When things weren't going well, uh, calm, uh, I think, kind of came across uh, as cluelessness. And uh, veterans like those you mentioned didn't, didn't see him you know, rushing to the fore exactly to answer their concerns. And sooner or later, uh, if if you're not winning, that is going to wear away at your reputation. And in those days, you know, if if you start losing the press, uh, that's a big deal in in New York in the mid-1970s. And Although we we look back at Yogi Berra as this you know perhaps the most beloved figure in the history of New York baseball, and you know rightly so, that's different from having to be the manager every day. And I I think Yogi was was a, was a proud man who wanted to succeed, and and you know he did manage two different teams to the seventh game of the World Series, but. You know, he was never really viewed as a tactical genius, a great motivator of men, all all those sorts of cliches, whether that was fair or not. So, you know, he he was the right man at the right time in spurts, is I think the best way to put it. And the right time was not 1974. But I I will say to to, uh, your point, Mike, about uh, record or no record, you're still a kid at Shea Stadium. Uh, two, two things strike me very personally about 1974. Uh, 1974 brought me my my first win at Shea Stadium, and it was John Matlack pitching a one-hitter uh, against the Cardinals. The only hit was John Curtis, the opposing pitcher. It was old-timers day. I was asked uh, what game I wanted to go to. I said, you know, like any 11-year-old would say, I want to see a bunch of retired baseball players uh, trying to uh, put their uniforms on again. I, I loved watching on TV. And uh, it, it was a, uh, you know, a, a fantastic and, and colorful experience in my mind. still is. And then one other, just, it, it, it's just one of those moments where you think about it and you realize how much it impacted you for the rest of your life. That summer, I was in day camp, and this one kid in in my group uh, comes in one morning wearing Mets wristbands, and very casually, you know, it's the middle of the week, he says, yeah, I I went to the game last night, and I was kind of stunned because I'd only been to two games in my life at that point. One, One was, ironically, a day camp group the year before. And one, you know, when my sister and her friend took me to the old timers day, as I mentioned, 
those were always very special occasions set out like, you know, weeks in advance or months in advance. And here's this kid walking around with met wristband saying, yeah, I went to the game last night. I was thinking, you can just do that? You can just <laughs> go to the game on a weeknight? Like, it, it's not a big deal? And I, there was something in me that said, i got to try that when, I, when I'm able to. I, I want to be able to, quote, go to the game anytime I feel like it. And I think with the, uh, gosh, I think I'm, I'm closing in on between Shea and City Field, about 700 regular season games attended. <laughs> I, I want to thank Hal. I don't remember his last name, but I remember the kid's name was Hal, wearing the wristbands, being, uh, giving me something to aspire to. Uh, so if you've ever uh, if you've ever seen me on a Tuesday night at Shea Stadium or City Field, a little piece of that is from 1974. Thinking, boy, that would be the life. And uh, you're you're right. It's it, uh, you, you know you may be disappointed by the results, and uh, you may uh, be kind of bummed out by the standings. But you know you're 11 years old, and uh, you want to be there, and you want to wrap yourself in that identity. And, uh, you know, it didn't, it didn't start for me in 74, but it certainly continued. And, uh, you know, there, there'd be, uh, you know, there was always going to be another season. And uh, just, just like now, there's going to be another season. And then here we are, uh, those of us who remember it. What, what are we up to now, 47 years since then? The inverse of 74, yeah. 47. I don't know that that means anything. But uh, it couldn't have been that <laughs> bad. Because, uh, you know, 91 losses and nobody uh, on this call stopped being a Mets fan. And not for nothing, New York City was a Met town. You know, the, the Yankees in 74 were relatively insignificant still, you know, bleeding over from the 60s. So this was most definitely a Mets town and most enjoyable. Oh, yeah? I don't recall and they, a Yankee and they fan outside in, of my in, father. In literally my our block backyard, our front yard. So uh, it uh, was kind of a... Uh, I will not, I, don't know, I think public shaming would be <laughs> too strong a phrase, but uh, if, if you wanted two years, uh, when especially '74, uh, when you wanted to see the Yankees in, in sort of a moment of humility, uh, don't have their own. Not only don't have their own stadium, not only do they have to play in the Mets stadium, but they have to uh, play in the shadow of the National League pennant flying over Shea Stadium. Although I suppose they took it down for Yankee games. So, uh, you know, there, there was none of this uh, quote-unquote big brother, little brother stuff in those days. Uh, it was, as you say, uh, Mets Town, National League Town, all, the, all those things we cherish. And a 91-loss uh, season versus a uh, a pretty good Yankees team that made a uh, a surprising run at first place that year. Uh, felt, felt somewhat short. But, um, you know, that, that the, Met, the Mets were strong enough to withstand uh, one lousy, literally one lousy year. Uh, it was when we started having one lousy year after another that, uh, you know, things had to, uh, we, we all have to kind of look ourselves in the mirror and figure out, okay, how, how do we fix this franchise? But in 1974, you know, you could suck it up, and uh, you knew that uh, it was still going to be a Mets down once 1975 started. Catfish Hunter and Bobby Bonds notwithstanding. Well, I, I got to throw it out there, though, uh, in terms of the 1974 New York Yankees, that they did finish with an 89-73 record, finished second in the yeah. AL East. Yeah, but as oh, Greg yeah. says, no, was, you know, that was a, as yeah, Greg says, says, we a good team. There really meant nothing to a, a, a really good book um, proving that I don't just read about the Mets uh, called Now, <laughs> now Pitch. 
now pitching for the Yankees by Marty Appel, uh, someone you all, you all might be familiar with, uh, who uh, was the PR guy for the Yankees from the late 60s to the late 70s, has lots of great stories, a, a great raconteur in general. And he talked about that 74 season, what a you know delightful surprise it was, given all the things that were building against the Yankees historically and in, in terms of New York. <clears throat> And he even, like, came up with a, a nickname for that team uh, based on a, a song that was around that year called Band on the Run by, by Paul McCartney and Wings because, you know, the, the Yankees were this team that nobody saw coming and they would go into a town, steal two out of three, and, uh, you know, we're the band on the run. It's, it's hard. I, I guess we got a little bit of it in 96 when, when everybody was uh, trying to frame them as, as these uh, feisty underdogs. But uh, you, know, you don't think of the Yankees in that sort of context, but because they hadn't won for, at that point, 10 years and won anything, they, you know, only been in divisional races a couple of times and hadn't gone anywhere. Um, I, I, so I'll be honest, uh, September 1974, uh, until the Orioles took charge, uh, I, I lived in fear of the Yankees winning the AL East, only because I, I counted myself so fortunate to have never experienced that sort of thing. You know, I, I mentioned before looking at the backs of the, the team baseball cards from 1970. Well, I had seen the back of the Yankees card and seen all these World Series. And I remember thinking, I'm so glad that I don't have to live through that. And here, you know, 1974, it was closing in on us. And then, you know, the Orioles came to our rescue, in my mind. And, uh, we, you know, we would wait a couple of years to, to see what it felt like when, uh, you know, the postseason came back to the Bronx, and you know life was unfortunately never the same. So uh, no, it was a, it was a good team, and you know, it was a uh, it was it was a good year for baseball in general. I say as an 11 year old who uh, I remember I, I thrilled to uh, the Texas Rangers that year. I remember because uh, they came out of nowhere and uh, gave the A's a run for their money, and the, the Dodgers again another team that had this great reputation historically, but I had never seen them win anything. Uh, you know, they had this great start. They they held off the Reds. Uh, there was just a lot to watch. Again, when I, I don't know what it's like for 11-year-olds today, but um, you know, when you're 11-year-old, you know, you, you open the paper, you look at the standings, and there's, in, in those days, 24 different stories to be told, and, and you feel, even without a computer, even without the Internet, uh, like you're on top of every one of them. Uh, so um, I, I enjoyed that season a great deal, not not from a, a Mets standpoint at all, <laughs> except for the things I mentioned, <laughs> but, you know, for, from, from tracking these teams and, uh, you know, be, being into uh, the storylines that baseball was giving us. And, again, just to reiterate something I said before, you know, that this was practically the end of an era where you knew who was going to be on every team uh, when – the season ended for the next year, except for the trades they would make because there was no such thing as free agency. And again, as a, uh, as a decent human being, you, you can't tell people we have a reserve clause and you have to stay in this job until we tell you we don't want you anymore. Uh, of course, it's a good thing that that, <laughs> you know, that that came to, to pass and go away. But uh, again, it was, it was nice. It was nice knowing who was going to be on your team every year, you know. And then when a trade was made, it was a huge deal, uh, you know. No, no pun intended. Um, so uh, you know, it, it it was. I I feel 
that 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 moment in baseball. I mean, it wasn't quote unquote, but it, what I think a lot of people think of as the good old days because it's not sepia toned, it's not black and white. You you know, you you had the 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 crazy Oakland days and Charlie Finley, and it was very very modern times in a way, but. You know, it was still the national pastime in a way that I, I think it was would be dissipating bit by bit. Maybe it already was. Uh, maybe it's just the fact that I was 11 years old then and everything, you know. When you're 11 years old, you think, okay, this is the way it's supposed to be. But uh, it was a good time to be a baseball fan. Maybe not as good a time as it was in October of 1973 to be a baseball fan from our perspective. But... Um, you know, uh, I I like <laughs> I can put it this way. Well, what I said before about he didn't stop being a Mets fan just because I lost 91 games. Didn't stop being a baseball fan either. Um, you know, you, you you can lose a lot of interest in something that that isn't to your liking <laughs> if it's not going your way when you're that age. But uh, baseball was big enough and broad enough. I I think that uh, you know you could still love the game and love the sport, and love the players. Uh, even though your team isn't doing it. And I, I know that you know, one final, final point on this. As the season went along and it became obvious, even even to the Mets marketing team, you know, such as it was, that they couldn't keep marketing, hey, we, we won last year and you got to believe more in 74 and that sort of thing. I remember the, the announcer started reading promos for upcoming series at Shea Stadium. And instead of telling you, come see the Mets, they're amazing. It was like, come see the stars of the National League. And they would list, you know, everybody from Henry Iron to Andy Messersmith and Jimmy Wynn and Joe Morgan and, and whoever was having a great year and whoever was a, was a superstar and whoever would be considered a draw. And I remember thinking as an 11-year-old, okay, you know, they, they're telling us this because the Mets are in fifth place. <laughs> the, we, we don't have that much to look forward to. But you, you look forward to the idea that that's what we're going to play these teams and we're going to take on these superstars. And again, you know, you're 11 years old. You're, you're, there's, a, there's at least a little bit of innocence uh, prevailing in you. And, you know, that's not a bad thing. And my favorite era of Mets baseball might be 1970 through 1979, just to talk about. <laughs> I love hearing the passion you guys have for this era and just talking about it from, from where the, the, the fan, really the fandom of baseball for most people starts is just that feeling that you get when you go through these motions as a child and, 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 and discover the brilliance and, and the technicolor that's both, you know, literally right in front of you as well as visceral. Technicolor viscerally that baseball is. Um, it's it's beautiful and it's what we are doing here and why we almost fill two hours talking just Mets baseball alone and a little, you know, general baseball as well and some other New York baseball. Um, it, it's it's beautiful. It's outstanding. It, it's a wonderful thing. And uh, this is a Metsian podcast with Sam Rich and Mike. And uh, we thank you for uh, uh, your ears dropping in on us this evening. Um, without further ado, we come to our final word, and I'm going to first pass it to our featured guest of this evening, Greg Prince of Faith and Fear and Flushing. Greg, before you give your final word, please, once more, the shameless plug. Uh, 
shamelessly or otherwise, uh, I'm at faithandfearandflushing.com, the blog for Mets fans who like to read. Uh, Jason Fry, I've been calling it since uh, February of 2005, about to start our 17th season on the beat, our 17th spring training already underway. So uh, I try not to uh, try not to step back and realize that uh, what am I now? Uh, more than a not quite a more than a quarter of my life, not quite a third of my life doing this blog. <laughs> so um, you know, time flies when you're when you're having faith and fear. Uh, final word, uh, ju- just a, a moment of uh, tribute to one of the 1962 Mets who recently passed. Uh, Willard Hunter, also known as Hawk Hunter, also known as Bill Hunter, uh, which is what I discovered as I was doing a little bit of research when I learned he'd passed away at the age of 85. And it's interesting that these are these are the things that you don't know when you're just looking at baseball reference. And, and Sam, just as, as you express an admirable fascination for the 70s, even though you didn't live through them, I mean, I, I always feel like I'm, I'm missing a little something because as much as I can read about it, and uh, d- dig into the statistics. I'll never quite understand what it was like to be there in 1962 and 1964, which are years that Hunter pitched in '63. He was in the minors, and just knowing that he was casually referred to as Willard or Bill or Hawk. But the, the reason uh, the, his passing resonated for me when I learned about it was, um, Gosh, I, I don't remember the exact day. I think it was 2007. It doesn't really matter, but I think it was at Shea Stadium. Uh, you, you guys might know Mark Simon, who uh, does a lot of uh, statistical stuff. Used to be with ESPN. Huge Mets fan. Really knows a lot. And we went to a game together. And before you know, I, I was in my seat three seconds. His way of greeting me was to say, uh, three Mets have won both ends of a doubleheader. Can you name them?" And I knew Jesse Orozco had done it in 1983. I remember that vividly. And I was somehow aware that Craig Anderson had done it for the 62 Mets. And I was stumped. Or at least I had it on the tip of my tongue. And we worked it out until he gave me enough hints for us. And of course, Willard Hunter. So when he died, I thought of that night. And I thought of, you know, gosh, Willard Hunter winning two, two ends of a doubleheader. And uh, they, were, they were both uh, for the record in August of 64 games against the Cubs uh, that uh, the Mets one on, on what we now call walk-off singles. Uh, fascinating games to read about and to find. And then the, 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 I think the kicker here for me is in trying to do a little research on the life of Willard Hunter was that he did not spend the rest of his life as a former baseball player. He only played from 61 to 64 in the majors, moved back to Nebraska, uh, went on with his life, got into the computer business at some point. And uh, when the, Janet Paskin wrote a terrific book uh, around 2004, uh, Tales from the 1962 Mets. I guess she tried to track him down, and his wife responded saying, oh, you know, uh, you know, Willard appreciates your interest, but uh, that was a different part of his life. He was famous once, so that's, that's, not, that's done, and now he just wants to live his life. And, uh, you know, we think of these guys uh, in a very specific context, and even as we are aware that they do go on with their lives and do other things, uh, you know, to, to us, they are Mets and baseball players. And, uh, you know, some of them said, you know, that was just something I used to do. 
but I, I, I will just to, to put a, uh, a punctuation on, on the life of Willard Hunter. I will say that uh, from what I could tell, uh, he did not turn down autograph requests from fans because you, you always get fans who, you know, even if they never saw a player, they, they want to fill out a collection or something, and he would graciously sign. I saw some evidence online that he would sign, you know, best wishes, Willard Hunter. It's a small thing, I suppose, but uh, it's kind of nice that, that you know, you can could, you could count on a polite response uh, as long as I suppose you, you weren't prying too much. So uh, my final word is here's to Willard Hunter, winning pitcher twice in one day for the 1964 Mets who didn't have many days with even one win. Here's to Willard Hunter, uh, Hunter the Hawk, as you said. Uh, that's great, great. Thank you, Greg. I appreciate that. And, and uh, may he rest easy up there. Um, Mike, I'm going to uh, go to Mike next. I had so much fun talking about these 1974 Mets that I'm going to go have a John Milner jersey, mate. Folks, if you see me in 2020 <laughs> or 2021, you see a guy with a John Milner jersey, that just might be me. And if you use the code words Brooklyn Trolley Bogger, first beer's on me. <laughs> Thank you for that, Mike. Rich? Um, I'm going to say my last word is a hyphenated word, semi-normal. And what I mean by that is, let's face it, last year was last baseball season and the whole year, but baseball season in particular, was very abnormal. Well, this year, think about it. You watch the games, you see some fans in the stands. That's a good thing. Uh, not, a, not a, you know, It's not normal because the stands aren't full, but you see actually see paying customers. It's great. This year, we should have 162 games. The Mets, let's remember this, last year they didn't leave the time zone. So this year we'll have the typical thing we've all grown up with where they'll be in you know, the central time zone, they'll be in the mountain zone playing the Rockies, they'll go out west. Um, so there'll be normalcy in that sense. But again, what will capacity in these ballparks be? You know, 15, 20%, 25, 30 maybe toward the end of the year. So it'll be semi-normal. But you know what? Semi-normal is better than abnormal. And it's a step toward normal. So um, that's where I am. You know, semi-normal feels good. Semi-normal does feel good, you know. And I'm looking forward to seeing whatever this new normal is going to be, uh, whether that's baseball or otherwise. I, you know, as we're ta- we're waxing poetically about these 1970s New York Mets, uh, I can't help but be excited to see the 2021 New York Mets. And that is always the Mets baseball that I so very much want to talk about is what is going to happen today. Once that Mets baseball is back, it's just going to be a whole nother world. Hearing the crack of Pete Alonzo's bat and seeing his poise, he really did look like, uh, 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 the junior that he is, he, you know, if you were, were keeping with the college uh, uh, metaphor, he really looks poised and ready to shake off a pretty bad 60 games. Um, so I, I'm really looking forward to seeing what this team can do. I'm really looking forward to this next chapter of Mets baseball. And I think the only way to finish it is how would we say it, Rich? We would say something we would say at the ballpark in normal times. Let's go Mets. Let's go Mets. Let's go Mets, everybody. Take care.
Thank you for listening. Thank you, Greg. Have a good night, everybody. Have a good night. Good night, all. Let's go, Mets. Good night.